Salutations, thriller and horror devotees. I am Melisette, your ardent hostess. On this podcast, I'll be reading stories, and each episode will be a chapter from a classic or a contemporary work. Sometimes I'll have special previews, science fiction, horror, thrillers. Uh, yeah, those are my specialties. When one book is complete, we will move on to another. It will be a pleasure if you accompany me through tales from the timeless past or maybe the dystopian future. Either way, let the ceremony commence. Oh, how y'all is? Welcome to another episode of A Frightful Fret. I am your hostess with the ghostess, Melisette. Today, November 14th, 2020, is our one-year anniversary. That's right, this show first debuted on November 14th, 2019, a year ago. How did we do it? I have no idea. I am still stunned and amazed, but without all of you, there would be no me, so I'm thankful for that, and I have to give much respect and many props to the Hyphen Podcast group and everybody over there who have been so incredibly supportive of my work and letting me be involved in different projects. So I love all of you. I love you Hyphen Podcast group. You are my family as far as I'm concerned. Good luck getting rid of me. If I show up at a holiday, that's that's how it is. I'm, I won't apologize. <laughs> I won't do that to you. Not without warning. The Hyphen Podcast group community was kind enough to give a couple of anniversary shout-outs to the show, so I'm going to play a few of those for you right now. So you didn't think we'd make it, did you? thought the idea that Frankenstein wouldn't sell podcasts, would, wouldn't bring the listeners where you were all wrong. You were all a thousand percent wrong. Because here we are at the end of season one. And y'all are begging for more. But Melisette said no. She said absolutely not. I got things I want to do. You didn't appreciate me while I was here. So now... Taking it all away. So this is for every one of y'all doubters. Every one of y'all naysayers. You said a frightful fret with Melisette wouldn't work. This is for your face. And you can kiss our asses on the way out. But no, really. Uh, congratulations, Melisette. Uh, for completing season one. Um, I... I was immediately mesmerized by your voice the first time I heard it come across. It's like a podcast or whatever. And I was like, man, she got a great voice. And then as you started to work with the Alapal crew more, I was like, man, she got a great voice. I really wish she would consider doing a podcast. But I never thought to say something. Like we had started talking here and there, just comments on Instagram, things like that. But I was like, man, I wish she was really going to do a podcast. And if she's going to do a podcast, she needs to do it for Hyphen Podcast Group. But my dream came true. Because out of nowhere, I was told, oh, Melisette started a podcast. And then I was like, hey, Melisette, 
you want to come be down with the greatest podcast network around, hyphen podcast group. And she said, you're lucky I even throw in with a lot of you because she's classic. But let me stop playing for real. Um, congratulations, Melissa. Can't wait till season two. Appreciate everything you do for us, all the Instagram stuff, um, all the input on different things, always being down for everything, and including the great ideas you're bringing to the table, uh, which you're going to execute at a later date, which can't be talked about now. But thank you. Thank you for this show. And onward and upward to greater success. Can't wait for season two. And let me stop playing. So with all that said, thanks, y'all. Happy one year anniversary, Mel. This is Eric KKEG on behalf of KC and us over at Shit Not Another Music Podcast. Wishing you a happy one year doing your show, Frightful Fret with Mel Set. We still need to hop on there and do it. But yeah, here's to many more years, many more episodes. Really happy for you. Hey, this is Kat from We Should Do This Again Sometime, and it's like a podcast or whatever, and I just wanted to wish Melisette a happy one-year anniversary. Thank you for bringing the monsters to the people. I hope that you have an excellent celebration, and here's to many freaky fab more years. What up, what up, what up? It's your legendary secondary, the executive producer of Isla Pow, Mike, me. I'd like to wish a happy anniversary to A Frightful Fret with Melisette. And if the hood can quiet down for a minute, you can hear my heartbeat racing as I'm listening. Remember to catch A Frightful Fret with Melisette and all of the shows on Hyphen Nation through all of your favorite podcasting channels. What up, Melissette? It's your boy, the Mark Rob, aka Sean Matt Love, aka Gordon Darks, aka Four Eye Willie. <laughs> Just sending a special shout out for your one year anniversary for the podcast. You do great work, girl. I'm very happy that you're continuing this work and can't wait for season two. I know it's going to be just as good, if not better than season one. And here's the future collaborations and working with you, um, not only just for, you know, your pod and our pod, but for hyphen podcast group in totality. So cheers. judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. That was written by the late author Frank L. Baum from the book The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Thank you so much for the wonderful messages. I really appreciate it, and I'm not going to cry, and if I did cry, it's because somebody left out the onions. Welcome to our one-year anniversary spectacular. This evening, we have a doctor versus doctor battle royale. Actually, it's nothing like that, but we do have an English professor and a brain researcher talking about monsters. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
it might be my anniversary, but you're the one getting the gift at the end of this episode. Stay tuned for our musical guest, The Feels, as they bring to you their new track, She's Probably Not Thinking About Me, which could be the theme song for Frankenstein's Bride to Be or Not to Be. Cannot wait for you to hear this, and you are going to love The Feels. Find them at igotthefeels.bandcamp.com. Check them out, love them, heart them, give them all the likes. This is Melisette, and I am here with my two guests this evening. Guest number one. Okay, I'm Bruce McGee. I English at Louisiana Tech University. I have a PhD in comparative literature from LSU. And I am uh, the editor of the Louisiana Anthology and co-host of the Louisiana Anthology podcast. So uh, you can listen to me on fine uh, podcast uh, broadcasters everywhere. <laughs> And how about the website for the Louisiana Anthology? Yeah, just look up Louisiana Anthology. It's a long website that we kind of own the first page of Google. So anything you click on basically will bring you to us. It's a collection of texts, all thing Louisiana from the beginning to today. All right. And our next guest. Yes. Hi, my name is Rudolph Pienaar. I'm faculty in radiology at Boston Children's Hospital in Boston. My background or my, um, the work that I sort of professionally do is computational neuroscience, more computation than neuroscience per se. But we do a lot of research on brain imaging, brain structures, issues around that kind of stuff. And so improving computation within, uh, within medicine. Fantastic. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is because of your knowledge of the brain. And I know it's not typical to have an English professor and <clears throat> brain scientists on the same podcast, but we do things differently here at A Frightful Fret. When we're discussing Frankenstein, there's a lot of elements of science, even though it is science fiction. And there's some cross-sectional things happening that I felt might be worth addressing. Now, Bruce, I know you know a lot about Frankenstein. You taught the literature class. It was British literature, I believe. Right, right. Yes, I teach it in that class. This is one of the books that are in your class, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of the, um, I think it may be the uh, one or two of the four books that we read. Usually they're shorter selections, but we read the whole of Frankenstein. How much do you get into the science or is, this, is the science just sort of glossed over in terms of it being science fiction and not really getting into the details of how science was really just emerging at the time period that the book was written? Yeah, I mean, we do get into it some because uh, Mary Shelley, she's a 19-year-old. She is a teenage girl. Uh, who's run off with a much older man uh, to get away from his wife. And after she killed herself, they went to Switzerland because people were looking at them funny in England. And uh, they're up in the mountains. And uh, one of the, you know, it's bad weather. And one of them, uh, them comes up with the idea of let's each tell a ghost story and see whose is the best. Well, hers was the best. <laughs> Um, and you got to remember, this is, uh, what, 1815? Is that the date of the book? Um, I forget. It's pretty but, bad for um, both of us professionally if we don't know that detail. Well, there are a lot of books. Uh, Frankenstein first edition. But thankfully, we have the internet. Yeah, here we go. 1818. So I'm three years off. I knew it was early. In 1799, George Washington, the former president of the United States, died from a cold because the doctor he was using was a young doctor and he bled the former president too much. So this is a time and for decades to come when doctors believe in the four humors being uh, dominated by the four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And sickness is when those humors are out of balance. And so you can blood let them, 
I can feed them stuff to strengthen the blood. You give them an enema. You can give them an emetic, make you throw up. Uh, but it's all about balancing the humors. You know, and this stuff goes back to ancient times. And right on the bleeding, cutting edge of science was this idea that electricity has something to do with life. And so, you know, you, you look forward, uh, you know, we don't have exactly what happened to Frankenstein, you know, constructing a monster out of various parts. But, you know, if I go out and get my finger chopped off today and uh, it's not mangled too badly and I get to the doctor in time, they can reattach it. We have the whole industry of uh, transplants, you know, putting other people's organs into our bodies and they work. If I fall over apparently dead and uh, you've got the, you know, from a heart attack, you've got the paddles nearby with electricity, you can possibly bring me back to life. And this can go on for a while. You know, what is the line? Uh, because uh, let's say I'm a, you know, a kid ice skating and they fall through into the cold water and they're there 20, 30 40 minutes. The doctors will work on them for quite a while because there's a saying they're not dead until they're warm and dead, you know, because they may be able to bring them back without a whole lot of damage to the body or the brain. So I would say she was owned to something. I don't know, but I'm not the scientist among us. So what about the doctor? Yeah, that was what I was going to ask. I'm sort of, when did people start becoming aware that the brain was the center of the body and the real power tool that kept everything going? Oh, I can't actually answer that. I'm not too sure about the history of medicine per se. So no, I would just be guessing totally if I were to you know, speak to that. You know, the roots of modern medicine and modern science are all relatively recent. Certainly a lot of advancements, developments were made in the, uh, the 20th century. The 19th century was still relatively um, nascent, I should say. Um, things were beginning to be understood about the scientific process. You know, consider that as, as, as relatively recent as the American Civil War. There was no concept of uh, hygiene. Um, in fact, not even the First World War was that even fully understood or, you know, microorganisms and bacterial processes, and just the importance of cleanliness. These are all very new kind of concepts. So, yes, as to when the brain was understood to be sort of, let's say, the root of human thinking, I think that's probably been around for a very long time, uh, would be my guess. But I, I would defer in terms of that kind of history more to the, uh, more to the English professor in this, in this conversation. Um, <laughs> well, uh, that's actually not my area either. Let's see. Uh... Well, what I can say is I, I'm very interested in science. I write about science fiction. And when I'm writing, I want my science to be believable, even though it's completely fake. But because of this, I do read a lot of scientific journals. I've read some of Rudolph's scientific articles too, <laughs> but I've seen lots of different things. And technology these days can be a little bit scary because we read things and we read about cloning, for instance. And I saw a few years ago, I'm assuming it didn't work because it wasn't in the news that some gentleman was having a brain, um, not a brain transplant, but his body, he had some sort of disorder and his limbs weren't working but his brain was completely functional and they were going to try transplanting his head onto another body so as far as frankenstein effect that comes to mind but how close are we to anything like that actually being probable because you know that without the brain you don't have life 
anything like what being probable. A brain transplant oh. or a body transplant. <laughs> yeah, or so obviously you can't necessarily go out and just, you know, build a person with all these spare parts. But in terms of something along the lines of being able to manipulate the brain in a way where somebody could have a head transplant, which was an article I found and I, I don't remember specifically where I found it, but it was probably two, a year or two ago that I saw that. So I'm not sure if a lot of this stuff is just hearsay. Some of these are from foreign sources. <clears throat> so that always makes me wonder too, if they're that much farther ahead of us than we are with them, or if maybe we don't get all the information. It gets very confusing when you start looking for new science. Well, and how much is a scam? Uh, you know, these people are paying lots of money to have their bodies frozen after death. And if you're going to save a little change and, uh, you know, not pay quite as much, you just have your head frozen. On the theory that once they get advanced enough to conquer your disease and bring you back, it's not such a big thing for them to put your head on another body. Hopefully one even better than the one you had before. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. These are all interesting ideas. I, th I think, uh, you know, in, in some respects, right, it doesn't really matter what body part, if you will, you're trying to weld onto another body part. There's nothing is inherently special about anything of that. The problem with, with transplants or these kind of, uh, let's say, just putting one body part to another body part is a lot more basic and just biological. It has to do with the immuno response where... Mm -hmm your body's going to reject uh, tissue that it recognizes as not itself. Um, so, so in theory, yes. I mean, in theory, you, there's nothing biologically, specifically or scientifically uh, that would mitigate against transplanting, if you will, one head onto another body. But the, the actual mechanics of that is so complex that it is extremely difficult to do. And of course, you know, even if you are with today's kind of state of the art, if you were to even do something like that, you, you're instantly paralyzed forever. You don't reconnect the the new head to the entire complexity of the nervous system of the host body. And this is that would be the easy. trick, right? Would be figuring out how to attach neurons to each other. Uh, yes, yes. And there's nothing. I mean, this isn't entirely my field, but I don't think that there's anything at the moment in terms of any kind of breakthrough in terms of neural grafting, if you will. At the moment, you can't. You literally cannot connect. Once nerves have been severed, you cannot reconnect them. And in fact, these nerve cells have extremely long uh, structures, right? The nerves that run down the spine are, are a single cell, cells that have extremely long fi fibers. And as soon as you cut that fiber, the part of the cell that is, you know, downstream from the cut just literally dies off. And there's nothing for you to really connect back up to. So, so you know, the, the issue of, you know, uh, life, if you will, and, and the electricity concepts that are sort of embryonic with, with uh, Shelley's work. What that aside, even if you have completely pristine, wonderful, no issues, healthy biological tissue, um, connecting them together is not an easy thing by any stretch. And you're gonna, no. you're not gonna really be able to, um, in fact, you'd have, much, you'd have much better luck with connecting um, some kind of artificial prosthesis, like let's say a robotic arm or a robotic leg or even something like that would be a much easier thing to do than connecting someone else's arm to one arm to a different body or, or what have you. And they have been experimenting with that, right? It's kind of the new, I mean, uh, talk about electricity, but you can run wires from the 
you know, they can attach electrodes to the outside of the head or even inside and pick up brain signals and run them down these exterior wires to the limbs and get them to move. It's just uh, the wires tend to break. You know, it's incredibly complicated and uh, not very elegant yet, but you can see a path to someday, rather than an exoskeleton, an exoneurological system, if you will. More biomechanical. Yeah. That seemed to be the direction that things would be heading. And is somebody going to make a biomechanical Frankenstein? And will it be Elon Musk? He may already be. It would explain a lot. <laughs> well, I was with Elon Musk at school, and uh, this kind of science was not his forte. Um, so I don't <laughs> think it'll be coming from there. But yes, it's much more likely, I think, a kind of um, prosthetic uh, device. So certainly a limb is much easier to do than anything more complex. And the more the cutting edge stuff would be, you know, internal organs, uh, those could be conceivable. Um, and these, these are things that are, could be custom grown or custom developed. I think a lot of the, front, uh, the forefront of medical science in terms of, you know, spare parts, spare body parts will, um, be, will develop from kind of genetic therapies where you kind of maybe grow a replacement liver for your, you know, person A needs a new liver. Instead of going through the complexity of, uh, of a liver transplant, because you're always going to be in immunosuppressants for your entire life, why don't you just right. grow your liver back? And that is probably going to be a more likely and conceivable downstream thing than, than transplants per se. And they are finding that there are different species like vaporfish that have the same cells as human cells and they're running a lot of experiments. I know at least in the field of cancer using that. So is it probable that there could be other animal species that have similarities in terms of tissue that could be somehow manipulated that we could use that in our therapies or to use pig valves in hearts if i'm not mistaken yeah pig valves valves are used in hearts um and again it's not really anything to do about some magical animal that is has that's close to a human structure that's really not the biological issue Uh, the issue simply is no matter what the uh, structure is if it's not your own your body will always reject Mm -hmm. um you know if you uh, if you could, uh, if you have a complicated biological structure, obviously, if you're trying to go from one to another, you will need something uh, that, you know, you can't necessarily take a pig liver, for argument's sake, and, and transplant it into a human, because the, the differences in terms of the environment in which that pig liver is designed to work in, you know, differences such as two or three degrees Celsius will render that, divi- will render that organ dysfunctional in its new environment. So these are very com- complex things, right? And it goes a bit to just how, I guess, amazingly, complicated these biological systems are and how finely tuned they try to maintain a particular condition under which everything works together right um you know and if we segue back to somehow reanimating dead flesh well as soon as you die a lot of stuff begins to break down uh, very very quickly and um you know quote-unquote resurrecting that uh is is almost a work of impossibility. You know, at some point you can still fire, you can still stimulate a nerve cell with electricity after, you know, post-mortem and it'll conduct for a little bit, right? Um, It'll still conduct energy, but it's not, there's no mechanism in that nerve cell that is replenishing the lost uh, chemical, you know, there's a whole, coast of chemical you know dance that occurs as of, as the because uh, it's chemical energy that's converted in um, electrical energy is actually carried by chemical energy so there's all these chemical processes that run along the nerve fiber to enable this to happen and they need to be reset and that reset takes energy so there's a whole system that's in place to perpetually reset and maintain these very delicate structures and as soon as you're dead 
you might have some reserve where nerve cell will still conduct for a little bit, but there's no reset happening. After a while, it'll just stop because it just literally is, is worn out. And the same thing with muscle tissue, right? For a while, they'll fire and respond. But again, there's no reset happening. And then they begin, even if they didn't break down, they would just stop working no matter how much you try to stimulate them. And even, so, even muscle tissue that's not being used, if you're in bed for a month and then you try to get out of bed, you're not going to be able to walk. You're not going to be able to move. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a different process there, but you can imagine that something like that where you don't use the muscle becomes atrophy. Um, when it's actually dead, uh, that atrophy is, is accelerated by, you know, orders of magnitude and, and the actual structure itself breaks down. It's the spookiest time of the year. One where a man in a red suit threatens to break into people's homes and eat all their cookies with the promise of trinkets to reward good behavior. Maybe you've been good boys, ghouls, and spirits this year, but crave something more than a box of candy or some socks. Have your loved ones shop like a maniac at Maniac Monsters, illustrator Jeff Carlson's home for all the stickers and magnets you need to display adoration of your favorite characters, both living and undead. You'll also find iron-on decals and pins to spawn new life into that boring pack of t-shirts from Grandma. Visit ManiacMonsters.com, that's M-A-N-I hyphen Y-A-C-K Monsters.com, and find Maniac Monsters on Instagram before I have to come and find you. <laughs> I've often said in relation to people who die and come back or they are resuscitated that you're not necessarily getting the same person that they were before they had the episode that caused them to flatline. The other option is to die, of course. So, you know, we choose life. Where you mentioned that things break down very quickly, a lot of people don't take that into consideration. Yes, this is true. I mean, when I also say very quickly, I'm not talking seconds. I'm not saying that within 10, 20 seconds of, of let's say, uh, when the heart's, if the heart stops beating, that, you know, things are irretrievably lost. That's not really how it works. Um, and, you know, there are cases where, especially with temperature involved, if you are, if you were lower the core temperature, you can, you can get away with a longer delta between, you know, shutdown of systems and resuscitation. But there certainly is a point of no return in biology where you just cannot resuscitate. Even if everything looks pretty much okay, there is a point beyond which it's not really going to work. Uh, what about people who are cryogenically frozen? Yeah. Looks like I mean, <laughs> am I going off the rails completely with that one? No, no that's but, interesting. You mean, what is your question about that? That's an ongoing thing that you hear. You know, there's that rumor that Walt Disney had his head frozen, or I heard about people opting to have themselves and their pets cryogenically frozen so that they could extend their life. <laughs> I mean, did either did of you watch Futurama? Yes. yes. You know, they get all those heads in jars like Nixon and just the famous people from history who had their heads frozen. So now they've got them in these jars that keep them alive and they can, you know, levitate around and stuff. So, uh, but that's a little beyond science fiction, almost in the realm of fantasy, I would think. True. I mean, you could argue science fiction is its own kind of fantasy as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, where is the line? I, I think these things about cryogenically frozen, in my opinion, it's just... I don't know. My opinion is it's a bunch of crock. Um, it's just a way that people have figured out that they can make money from uh, people who have money to spend. Um, yeah, it sounds like a scam. I mean, 
there are, there are so many issues with that, but let's then let's just touch on maybe two of the ones that come to mind. Uh, well, the first one that comes to mind is why would you, who in the future is going to be even interested, supposing this mythical future to whatever, unthorced, um, dead, frozen head from 50, 60, 100, well, however many years ago it is. I mean, what would the reason for that be if you have this? I mean, sure, I guess, let's say there was someone whose head was, who's someone from whatever, the 1500s. Maybe, maybe there'd be a historical interest in somehow if you could reconnect with that person, I get that. But for the most part, if you have all of these frozen, you know, heads around, why would you be, why would you even reanimate them if you could? That's one thing that comes to my mind. Um, but, you know, the next thing that comes to my mind, it's again, speaking to the delicate structure of these biological systems. I don't know exactly what the process of cryogenic freezing is exactly at a, at a, at a basic level, but without a doubt, the act of freezing water creates an expansion you know ice is bigger than water because it occupies a larger volume and you essentially destroy all of these delicate structures as soon as you freeze i don't think it's possible to necessarily flash freeze something and preserve its really delicate structure at the microscopic level uh, so i just think it's a crock to be honest we're destroying a lot of people's monster fantasies here tonight <laughs> and since we're on the subject and we're trying to wrap things up, I just want to say one last word. Zombies. Oh, yeah. Zombies would be great. <laughs> what is wrong um, with zombies other than the fact that they're brain dead? Well, they're more than just brain dead. They're, they're totally dead, right? Supposedly. But somehow animated. Yeah. Are we talking Walking Dead type zombies? I mean, there's so many different types of zombies, right? There's... World War Z type zombies. There's 28 Days Later zombies. We don't want zombies that are really good at running because I'm we not like slow zombies. Yes. So <laughs> I prefer Walking Dead zombies, and hopefully it's not 28 Days zombies. But yeah, well, I mean, obviously they can't exist. I mean, it's it's impossible. Uh, again, biologically speaking, I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing with all of these these ideas, right? You cannot, they cannot exist in the way we currently understand. Uh, chemistry and biology it's just it's just not possible so the only way you can make them exist if you want to somehow really bend yourself over backwards to somehow argue that they could exist is if you you have you have to introduce some kind of supernatural element you have to introduce some kind of something that is totally outside of our entire current current understanding of well, well, so the original zombies were a voodoo you know a product of voodoo so that makes sense um you know, the modern zombie was created by Romero in the 60s, but before that, the word it applied to people who had been placed in a kind of voodoo trance by their masters and forced yes. to be slaves. And they, they um, weren't actually dead. Right. Okay, so, um, you know, the idea of forbidden knowledge is at our bottom, you know, of our common shared European mythology, like uh, uh, Adam and Eve had the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. More to our point was a fire being stolen by Prometheus and given to Epimetheus. And that's kind of a technological forbidden fruit, if you will. Uh, and in punishment, they created Pandora and sent her with this other forbidden knowledge. She's had this jar. Originally, it was a jar, not a box. It's told, by no means do you open it. And all the woes of the world came out. So that's kind of... And if you notice, the subtitle of Frankenstein is a modern Prometheus, right? Um, and so he's got this new spark of 
electricity rather than the old spark of fire. And then there were occasional people in mythology like Daedalus who invented the wings. Uh, and then his son Icarus flew with them and flew too close to the sun and died. So, you know, forbidden knowledge always destroys the person who reaches for it. Like there are limits set by God or the gods or nature, and we're not supposed to go any further. Um, Marlowe, I was just teaching Marlowe this last week, and uh, he wrote Dr. Faustus, who made a deal with the devil for magic knowledge. But this is a shift, like this is science as opposed to magic, as opposed to supernatural stuff from the God. It is a scientific, you know, of, uh, well, fiction, but based in the ideas of we're getting into an area of science uh, that we should not be getting into. And all the mad scientists ever since go back to Frankenstein. So she didn't only create a monster, she created a monster machine, uh, Godzilla. You can't have Godzilla without Frankenstein. Uh, the fly. Did you see Jeff Goldblum's uh, version of the fly? Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's all about, I, I went too far. I got this knowledge that I wasn't supposed to have. And as a result, I'm, uh, you know, turning into this uh, brundle fly is what he called himself. So all the mad scientists really go back to this one story. And it's just, a, you know, you can turn your TV on any given night. Did either of you watch Fringe, the TV series? Oh, yeah. I, that was amazing. Yeah, wonderful stuff. In the very first mm-hmm. episode, uh, Peter's talking about, yeah, his dad's locked away in this uh, insane asylum. And, but before that, he was working on toothpaste at, uh, at uh, Harvard. And uh, the FBI agent says, uh, he wasn't working on toothpaste. <laughs> and she goes into all of his stuff. And he says, are you telling me my father is Dr. Frankenstein? And basically, yes. So this is one of those, we know what we mean when we say Frankenstein, right? Um, it's the guy who goes too far, um, and, you know, reaches for knowledge. That, and I mean, guys, we're teetering on the edge of mass extinction uh, because we never learned how to properly handle that original technology. We've burned too many fires and thrown too much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And we're all going to die. So, yeah, these stories, are they have resonance for a, for a for a reason. Anyway, that's all I got. Yeah, no, I, th- I just want to follow up on it. That's actually a, a really interesting uh, perspective. And I, I definitely think that more to the core of Frankenstein, I, I don't even think that science per se is really one of the core themes of, of the original um, you know, retelling of it to begin with. I think it was just more of a plot device or a vehicle to convey other themes, ideas, concepts. Certainly one of them perhaps bordering on this idea of, of forbidden knowledge. Um, or, or knowledge that we, quote unquote, should 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 not have this kind of thing. You know, I, I myself tend to fall a bit on the other side of that argument. I actually think that all knowledge, there's no such thing as forbidden knowledge. I think knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge, is core to the human condition, and I, I think that it is in that that um, so certainly problems arise, but also solutions solutions can be found. Um, right. So, so I, I myself would never argue for like you know oh we just because, you know we can't do X Y and Z. Uh, I think if we if we're capable of, of discovering or understanding something, it, to me it is something that would be reason to do it. 
I'm not arguing necessarily for like um, pure unadulterated for the knowledge for the sake of I don't know in my mind knowledge for the sake of knowledge is, is already a noble endeavor um, but any technology look there's nothing inherently forbidden there's nothing inherently good or bad there's no moral color to to knowledge there's no moral color to science to nature to any of these things it is simply how human beings decide to you know use them and, and color yeah up. we have to deploy science in an ethical way i mean you've got a whole body of ethics as a doctor exactly there's um, a whole without a doubt um uh and, and ethics can govern a lot of that and as much as anything uh it's a critique of um you know science without ethics like frankenstein doesn't care for his creation. He just kind of abandons it. Uh, and as a result, the monster develops a huge resentment toward his father and decides to you actually, know, lash out. Actually, yeah, do you have ahead. a take on that? Because um, back in the day, I was a bit of a Frankenstein scholar. And yes. I wrote a lot of papers on the subject. And the time that that book was written, there were not many female writers. And we right. were only just now getting on the cusp where people started to begin, hey, slavery is bad, we're hurting people. So to me, this book, even though we have all those other messages, there's also a message of acceptance for all human life, regardless of their origins. Oh, that's good, yeah. So, so if he had I think there's his... also a social message tied into that. Yeah. and. Uh, you, she is one of the early, early women writers. Her mother was a woman, a female writer, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a, you know, kind of helped invent feminism. Uh, and this is a, a kind of critique of unhinged patriarchy. You know, what is the desire behind creating this uh, creature in the first place? It's to have my own children without having to go through the intermediary of some woman. Uh, and, uh, you know, so he's basically trying to write women out, which is an old theme, like, uh, was it Euripides wanted uh, his, uh, uh, who was his character? Hippolytus. He wanted to go to the Temple of Zeus and pay money and buy an egg, uh, and uh, the egg would come and hatch out sons, and then there wouldn't be women at all in the world. And uh, this is kind of a, you know, patriarchal fulfillment of that. And a critique of, you know, uh, uh, what, uh, the Enlightenment. You know, the, she That's was early, true. early romantic. And the, the mother in the, in the book is very much portrayed as the Madonna. And Elizabeth is, um, you know, completely pure of heart. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and they, you know, don't do so well. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, this critique of the Enlightenment, so much so that her husband felt the need to write a preface that was like, okay, the little woman, you know, she's more of a teenager, really, and this is just a ghost story, and it doesn't really mean anything. Obviously, he's got a lot of anxiety around this story, which is much more popular than anything he ever wrote. But also the message, right? It's making him nervous. Um, what is she saying about men in our science and uh, I don't really I feel a little uneasy about that so yeah um, 
there was something to this. It's quite a story. Do we have any closing thoughts? That was kind of my closing thought. It's an excellent one. (laughs) How about you, Rudolph? Any closing thoughts? Um, Well, I I think uh, this is, yeah, this has been a great uh, discussion interchange. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, There are lots of things to talk about, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There's lots of things to talk about the role of science in society. Um, you know, my closing thoughts would certainly be in, in these current times that you know, we find ourselves in, I, I certainly would uh, just want to point out just the fundamental importance of science in uh, human good. And um, I'm just talking about public health and whatever the current uh, pandemic and this, that, and the other. Um, you know, science is, is, is in my mind, the, the, that which will provide knowledge and already does provide knowledge strategies in which to essentially be safe as human beings within this larger planet and this larger universe, whatever, however you want to, however you want to expand it up. Um, so yes, I certainly would, would close with a, uh, a plug for the, the importance of science within our society today. A very special thanks to both of my guests. This has been the one year anniversary special and I'm delighted that you could be a part of it. And I really appreciate that you took the time to give a listen. As a special treat, here is what I promised in the beginning. She's probably not thinking of me by the feels. But she's probably not thinking of me She's probably not